Blog Talk Radio. about Eastern, of course. Our mission is to keep the name and memory of our beloved airline going strong and our family together. As we have said throughout the last year, we have become the radio voice of Eastern Airlines with not only Eastern folks listening in, but listeners from around the world. That's right, over 50 countries now. We truly have become known around the world and we hope to add more countries in 2020. We broadcast from our studio here in St. Augustine, Florida. By the way, a little history for those listening around the world, America's oldest city. And we have hosts from many parts of the U.S. that are with us each week, and you'll hear them tonight. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. We have another great show for you tonight with an all-star cast. Chuck Albright, our radio show announcer, is here to... Get us started. Chuck, it's all yours. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As that producer said, we're glad you're with us for more of Eastern Talk. News and information. Coming to you live part of about 70 miles north of Orlando, where Disney World is. We're at a balmy 70 degrees right now. We've had really good weather this week. Let's hear from our hosts and ask them to give their locations and weather. Mr. Producer, if I miss anyone, please let me know. Dorothy, Don, how are things in the villages? Really great. Uh, We're having a good time here and lots of company and enjoying our weather. Of course, they... They slapped us with a little cold weather today and tomorrow, but that won't last, so we're, we're doing well. Thank you. Don? Very good. Don Jim and Kenny. Carrie Holder? So, How are you doing in the area? Yeah, well, Atlanta, Georgia is going down into the mid-20s today, and uh, Carrie and I went down to my hangar this morning and winterized my camper. Uh, so it's... Not going to take a chance on busting lines. That's how cold it's getting. Well, now let's take a trip up north to the New York area. Mike, how's the weather and how's it go so far this year? 
Well, it's a term uh, you got some uh, Dorothy used. I think was uh, it's a it's a balmy twenty six degrees. <laughs> <laughs> the wind is out of the northwest at about ten. Supposed to go down to nineteen tonight and about thirty one degrees tomorrow. Weather about the same, but uh, it's winter, so we're putting up with it. Chuck. All right. Now, let's get back to Florida. By golly, our hosts are scattered all over this great country of ours. Colleen, how are things in your area? Okay, Chuck. Well, I'm in Wesley Chapel, about 30 minutes north of Tampa, and right now it's about 52 and clear. It was nice and sunny today, a little bit breezy, just cool enough to take the 17-month-old twins to the playground. So I'm tired. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of fun. And down in the Miami area, we have our eastern version of 3.0 guy, Mark Partis. Hey, Mark. Um, Yeah, it's great down here. Nice and balmy. (laughs) Not 26, though. (laughs) No, not 26. (laughs) Well, I guess that's all from our host. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show for over the past eight years. And as Neil said in the opening, we're in our ninth year of broadcasting. You've truly made the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. We love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello and talk to us on the air live every Monday evening. We can identify with many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Just think, we have folks in Ecuador and Somalia, Spain, Brazil, Indonesia, China, Japan, and they pick up our broadcast just to name a few. That's what we try to do every week on the Eastern Radio Show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to the broadcast? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using our radio icon on our homepage at www.easternradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Remember to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk to on our live broadcast, feel free. Use our call-in number of 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Every repeat that number so you can write it down for your Monday night visits. 213-816-1611. By the way, tell your friends about us. Our membership is growing. We're well over 100, I believe 30-some now. And don't forget, you can listen to any uh, of our uh, 441 Monday night broadcasts and 100-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's Captain, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And scrolling down through the archives, each episode is briefly described and we're over 500 episodes now from our Eastern Files in the Eastern Old Time Radio Series. And our Mr. Jim Hart, we'd like to say, holy blue Sunoco, and we hope you're feeling better and get back on the radio with us soon. 
By the way, we're over 1,030 people now. Excuse me. The lines are always open for calls. If you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone, as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noise. And now, speaking of takeoff, we'll see we're number one for takeoff. So, Captain, let's flight 442. Let's get it in the air. Tower Blur is 650, we'll tip that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for Tonight's discussion focuses on two parts of flights, takeoffs and landings. Many passengers fear either the takeoff or the landing or sometimes both. We asked the experts, experienced airline pilots with thousands of hours, to tell us what goes into getting an aircraft off the ground and back on the ground at our destination. Captain Jim Holder, do all airlines take off at a certain speed, and how do pilots know when the aircraft is ready to come off the ground? Jimmy? Yeah, well, uh, good question, but there's very many variables, uh, different airplanes, different weights, and everything. First, the weight of the aircraft and the length of the runway are primary factors in determining the speed in which this aircraft is ready for the air. Other factors, such as elevation, that's height above sea level, wind, temperatures, whether the runway is wet or dry, and so on. The pilots figure the various speeds to reach the safe liftoff speed called V1, V1 speed. That's the speed at which the airplane can safely be stopped on the remaining runway should a problem developing required the aircraft to abort the takeoff. In other words, they can have enough runway left to stop with max brakes, I'm sure. Examples of problems that should arise are engine failure or its parameters exceeded such internal temperatures, low oil pressure, many other indications that the pilots feel the takeoff should be aborted, debris on the runway, or another aircraft approaching the takeoff runway, getting across the runway without permission has happened before. After B-1 speed, that's the we just talked about, has been reached. The pilots are looking for a speed called VR. The R stands for rotation speed. That's when you see the nose start coming up. The pilots pull back on the control column just a little bit to position the aircraft so the angle attack of the wings is increased to a positive angle that creates lift as the airplane continues to accelerate. Then you got V2. That's the speed at which the aircraft is now in the air, and if an engine fails, the aircraft can be flown at this speed or maybe 
speed up a little bit and return to the airport and land. Now, that's the simple answer to your question, Don. Well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Colleen? Uh, Captain Mike, Scott, um, are there more accidents with takeoffs than with landings? Well, that's a good, uh, good point. This is the old saying used to be that, uh, that the takeoffs were optional and landings were mandatory. But uh, <laughs> landing is generally considered to be quite a bit more hazardous and requires a bit more exact handling than a takeoff does. But both takeoffs and landings can have their challenges. Still, aircraft like to fly. Sometimes it can be a little tricky to encourage them to stop doing so at the end of the flight, especially in the presence of unpredictable winds or slippery runways and other non-normal conditions. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we need to be, if we need to uh, enter, be entertained watching scary landings, you have to, uh, on the Internet, you got the YouTube, which has hours and hours of crosswind landings of various challenging airports. And these uh, crosswinds can be very tricky because uh, you got a lot of wind. Uh, pilots a lot of times use a cross-control method uh, to put the, uh, the upwind, upwind, upwind wing down and the opposite rudder to maintain the runaway center line. And if they have a problem with that, uh, blowing them from one side to the other, it could be continue, uh, uh, considered to maybe use a different runway or a different airport. The same goes for a crab condition on a lot of different airplanes. The manufacturer of the aircraft is, in its uh, aircraft manual, gives a speed at which is demonstrated as a maximum crosswind speed to safe to a safe landing in the aircraft at a different angle to the runway center line. Uh, of course, the wind speeds and the angles vary. And many pilots will determine whether to continue the landing or go around for another attempt. When determining speeds and performance of an aircraft, the manufacturer uses standard atmospheric pressure and temperature. That being sea level, as determined by using the barometric pressure of 29.92 inches of mercury or 1013.2 millibars of pressure. For temperature and standard factor the 59 degrees Fahrenheit is used yes um, I'll address this question to the next uh, captain uh, recently there were at least three incidents of planes getting off runways or taxiways in freezing conditions with ice on the runway how safe is the anti-skid braking system on a modern jet Dorothy, I'm going to take this. Uh, George is not able to be with us tonight, but uh, the modern jet's anti-skid system is very good. Many pilots have landed on ice-covered runways many times using the anti-skid system to safely stop the airplane. Pilots listen carefully to other landing airplanes for descriptions of uh, the stopping ability on the runway for instance, a pilot might call in, uh, or the tower might ask the pilot, uh, what, uh, what's your stopping conditions? Uh, and they might say, poor or medium or uh, uh, not so bad, or whatever they reply to. In addition to the wheel brakes of most jets and turboprops, the pilots can use the reverse thrust to assist in decelerating the airplane. Once the aircraft is slowed to taxi speed, Pilots must carefully and slowly maneuver to the gate. 
I've got a little story I'm going to tell a little bit later on about that. Airports do all they can to keep the runways plowed and swept, which is essential to flight operations. And pilots are informed when the last plowing and sweeping took place so they can judge the braking conditions. Airports that receive substantial snowfall during winter months are often effective in removing snow and keeping the airport uh, operational. And um, we can visualize, right, uh, Jim and Mike and uh, Chicago, the Congo line with all those plows going up and down the runways. The limiting factor in an ice-covered runway is often the crosswind. During the initial rollout, during landing, a strong crosswind can push the airplane sideways. Pilots are careful to assess the amount of crosswind before landing in these conditions. Runway conditions can change quickly, requiring judgment and experience by the pilot in determining whether it's safe to proceed. This system has worked very well for many decades to ensure the safety of landing aircraft. Got something here I wanted to play if I can find it. Oh, here it is. Tower FedEx 3745 Heavy is on the ILS. 25 left is low. 25 Heavy, LA Tower on my 25 left. Number 2, following Champion Heavy Airbus 3, a mile final. Okay, number 2. 777. These are all considered heavy jets because of their gross takeoff weight. And uh, when one rolls out uh, uh, on takeoff, they always advise the takeoff, the next takeoff, uh, the pilot that uh, beware of wake turbulence. And uh, uh, it can surprise you sometimes. It has me. And I'm sure Jim and Mike, you've had the experience with wake turbulence as well. But Jim, you carry on here. Okay. Now, when an aircraft has to return to the airport because of an emergency or for other reasons, overweight landings could present the pilot with another challenge. Aircraft have maximum weights as determined by the manufacturer. There is a maximum gross weight. 
There's a maximum zero fuel weight. That means no fuel on the airplane. Maximum taxi weight. Maximum takeoff weight. Maximum structural weight. Maximum landing weight. Mercy. Aircraft such as the Boeing 757 may land even if an emergency exists that requires an immediate landing. Even though it took off at the max takeoff weight, it has no fuel dump system as most of the large airplanes do. Aircraft that have long flight segments like Atlanta to London will require maximum fuel loads to, to reach the destination. Should an emergency occur, the aircraft would have to be assigned an altitude to dump fuel to bring it down to its maximum landing weight. Actually, some years ago at Eastern Airlines, we, my crew and I, were to fly a Boeing 727-200 from Atlanta to Denver with a full load of passengers. The 727, like most airliners, extends partial flaps to improve lift on takeoff, after which they are retracted for climbing crews. That afternoon, however, when we started retracting the flaps after takeoff, one set of flaps on the wing, one wing, stopped retracting. This could be very bad, one wing doing something the other wing's not doing. So Boeing had a system that automatically stopped all the flaps from further extension if there was a disagreement. So we then advised Atlanta to Park Control and were cleared to climb up to about 5,000 feet and at a point about 25 miles southwest of Atlanta, we dumped fuel down to a safe landing weight. Of course, I told the passengers about all this, and they watched the fuel coming out of the pipes near our wingtips, both wingtips. We did we make a normal landing, but the crash crews were all out on the side of the runway. Some 8 or 10 passengers saw all this and decided they didn't want to go to Denver after all. Some hours or so later. <laughs> it turned out there was a, a pilot, Eastern pilot, and his wife and child didn't get on the airplane because it was full. So I went and found them in the in the employee cafeteria and told them we had some empty seats. So they came running out there and got on the airplane. So that worked out good for them. Well, back at the <laughs> gate, maintenance extended the flaps. They lubricated them, ran them up and down through about five or six cycles. All this worked okay. And so we tried it again, and this time we got to Denver about two hours late. Now, i tell you this story because recently a United Airlines had plane had to dump fuel after taking off from LAX to Shanghai. Uh, yes, Jim, you know, uh, there was a recent incident that happened only last week with just such a situation. A recent, a recent story from Associated Press this past week, that's the Los Angeles AP News, some aviation experts said Wednesday that they were puzzled after the crew of a commercial airline decided to dump fuel at low altitude during emergency landing, causing a vapor to fall on the schoolyards and neighborhoods east of Los Angeles International Airport. No one was going to dump fuel where these guys did it over populated areas and schools. It's a pretty outrageous thing, said Ross Amer, CEO of Aero Consultant Experts, and a retired United Airlines pilot. They should have gone over the ocean or landed heavyweight. Delta Airlines said Flight 89 to Shanghai had an engine problem after takeoff Tuesday and needed to quickly return. 
the Boeing 777-200, landed safely after circling back over Los Angeles while dumping fuel to reach a safe landing weight, the airline said in a statement. We have our own maintenance host with us, so let's ask Chuck Albright if he has ever done an overweight landing maintenance check and what that entails. Chuck, do you have that information as to what is required in doing one of these inspections? Well, I've done a a few of them in my lifetime. Um, They can go from a a cursor inspection to a full-blown inspection, but the main one that we want to really look at tonight is the overweight condition uh, inspection, where we have... uh, to go out and first of all, we the plane. Um, we want to look at the logbook and hopefully we're there with the flight crew and talk to them and see what kind of uh, conditions that they had. So we have a general idea of, of what the plane went through uh, to get into this landing with an overweight condition. Um, first of all, we go out and, and we uh, inspect the whole airplane from nose to tail and see that everything that we think that could happen on an overweight landing uh, problem has been addressed. Then we go back and we start in a, like a checklist, so to speak, uh, coming in from the wings to the, to the uh, inside of the airplane where the landing gears are. Mainly we were looking uh, up, up on the bottom of the airplane wing We're looking for things like loose rivets and and screws that hold uh, inspection panels because that's where the fuel is inside the wings there. And if you see fuel, then you realize that the plane has been stressed in that area and it's going to have to have farther uh, uh, look-see as far as uh, the panels are concerned and the sealant that we seal up the uh, panels and stuff with. Then we get on into the main portion of it, which is the landing gear itself. Most of the time, the pilots can tell you which landing gear hit the runway first the hardest. So that's the one you want to start with and make sure that there hasn't had any structural damage in the uh, wing area or what we call the the wing box area. That's where the landing gear goes up and and is stored, that whole area in there is full of all kinds of electronics and hydraulics and fuel lines and, and you want to make sure none of that has come loose or anything for this, this, this overweight condition. After that, you want to go under the airplane because that's where the main spar of the airplane is that runs along the whole bottom of the airplane. You want to make sure it's kind of like the um, backbone of the airplane, so to speak, but it's not on top, it's on the bottom. And then you wanted to, to keep going around the circumference of the airplane. We have to get on these little cherry picker things, and it's, they pick you up, and you can go over the top of the airplane with it and see if anything has come loose there. There has been airplanes that the the – Big pieces of metal that that go over the top of the airplane have come loose because the rivets popped because of the overweight condition landing. And um, 
So that's mainly one of the things you're doing. So one of these uh, conditions that I speak of, you know, the wrinkling of the skin, the the uh, the fuel coming out of the wings, uh, the rivets, you know, where the rivet seams are. Uh, you want to look at the, the bulkheads and the cell skins. That's where the engines and star attachment, firewalls, where the engines are up against the skin of the airplane, of course, the wings, and the fuselage stringers. Those are the long portions that go down the center of the airplane. Plus, we have what we call uh, ribs out that go out the wings, the same thing. And they can be bent or stretched at that time. So once you determine that the plane has one of these conditions, obviously the plane um, is taken out of service. Um, we have different uh, places in, in an eastern system, Miami, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, that have the ability to bring the plane into the hangar and start tearing it apart as far as looking and the inner workings of the airplane. And if they find something um, structurally wrong with the airplane, then they have to sit down and make a decision about what they're going to do. I personally got in on a 727, and they called me over because I was the lead man that day for the crew that was working on it uh, and showed me the, the main spar that ran through the center of the airplane, and it was physically cracked. All of, you know, about uh, probably 60% of the, the spar was cracked. And I told them that you're going to have to tear the plane apart to replace that spar. And they said, well, we've got to think about that. Well, in the ensuing days, of course, um, once I wrote up the report, then it, it gets up-channeled. Up uh, it ended up in engineering, and the FAA came in, and they finally decided to actually take the plane and take all the skin off, all the spars off and everything else and put everything new in. Well, they didn't do it. They called Boeing. Boeing sent a, a team in of about 20 or 25 people. They even sent the tools and the, all the skins and the spars and everything. And they came in there for about two months to fix the airplane. And when they got through, it was like a brand-new airplane, and obviously it went back into service. I... Um, would like a little input from our fearless pilots out there, and maybe you could tell us about your one and only, or maybe more, because our intrepid Neil, Captain Neil, has made a lot of grease landings on this program over the years. So maybe you could tell the folks out there your best grease landing. We're going to save, save that for the next segment. Uh, right now, I want to scare folks even more with what Colleen has got to talk about. Thanks, Chuck. You're welcome. And you think air travelers have fears of humans landing the aircraft that they're traveling in? Here is where we're headed. Pilotless takeoff. Now that scares me. I, I won't even trust my, my cruise control on my car. And recently... We read this from Reuters. An Airbus test aircraft successfully took off from Toulouse-Lanang Airport in southern France autonomously without any pilot input. The test was part of Airbus's autonomous taxi takeoff and landing program that explores increasing autonomous technology in aircraft. 
The success of the test may be the next step in creating fully self-flying aircraft, though Airbus has said pilots will always be, quote, at the heart of the operation, unquote. Airbus released photos on Wednesday of a flight test it conducted last month that may be the next step in making fully self-flying planes a reality. The flight test successfully sought to have one of its newest aircraft, the Airbus A350-1000XWB, take off from Toulouse-Villeneuve Airport in France completely on its own, aided by imagery from the aircraft's camera. Test pilots for the European manufacturer said that all they had to do was line the aircraft up and engage the autopilot, with the aircraft doing the rest, including making the necessary corrections to stay on the center line and bringing the plane's nose up when required. Here's how the automatic takeoff was performed and what it means for the future of aviation. Quote, it started to move and accelerate automatically, maintaining the runway center line at the exact rotation speed as entered in the system, unquote, said Airbus test pilot Jan Bofil. The nose of the aircraft began to lift up automatically to take the expected takeoff pitch value, and a few seconds later, we were airborne. Photos released by Airbus show Bofil's hand hovering over the side stick as the airplane's nose pointed towards the sky. He was not flying the aircraft, but merely an observer, though ready to take over if need be. The plane's cameras ensured the plane was heading in the right direction. The A350 typically has three exterior cameras installed, both for viewing by the pilots and the passengers. Don? And now we turn to our in-house pilot host to tell us their own thoughts, and perhaps a story or two from them about their takeoffs and landings. Uh, Neil, you got anything, or Jim? <clears throat> well, uh, let me mention Des Moines, Iowa. Now, you, we know that Easter didn't fly to Des Moines, Iowa, uh, but I did on a particular snow covered runway I mean the whole state was uh, they had a blizzard and I had a charter flight I was to fly an empty airplane a 727 stretch 200 into Des Moines pick up a full load and carry them to Bermuda where the weather was much better and upon arriving at the Des Moines area the tower advised me that the runway had just been plowed and that just the last part of it was still questionable but we had the landing length and if I missed the first turnoff I would have to turn around on the runway and come back to it now I was the first airplane to land in Des Moines that morning so we went ahead and did our approach and we landed the airplane and sure enough you could see just the tip of the runway light sticking out of the snow on the sides. And uh, we came to a, a stop using maximum reverse uh, the, the three engines and, and, um, and, and the brakes. Now, of course, I had missed the taxi off to the terminal. 
and I had to make a complete turn on the runway. Now the end at the runway, uh, he said it was questionable. It was. It was ice. It was solid ice. And uh, I started to make the turn, and the airplane didn't want to turn. It wanted to slide. So I got it turned around, and I told, uh, you know, uh, the first officer was a guy named Frick. I can't think of his first name, uh, Jim Holder. You probably knew who I'm talking about. No, I'm not yeah. for that. But at any rate, we started the turn, and we kept getting closer. The nose kept getting closer and closer uh, to those little tips of the lights on the side of uh, the runway, uh, boundary lights, or runway lights. And uh, uh, it was obvious I was going to go off the runway. And so I didn't have any choice except to do what I did next, and that was to use a reverser, and back the airplane up. Now, Boeing hadn't cleared any 727s to back up. Uh, late, right, uh, later, they, we started to back up at the gates, reverse out of the gates, and um, instead of using tugs to push us away. But uh, when I pulled all three engines in reverse, all of a sudden I had a whiteout. All that snow that was left on the runway and anywhere around it covered the airplane, completely covered. I mean, we couldn't see anything except snow on the windshield. So I didn't know where the heck I was. But by golly, the airplane moved backwards, and it gave me just enough clearing room to clear the uh, runway edge. And I taxied very slowly. I think it took me 30 minutes to get to the terminal. So that's my experience with icy runways. And um, we've got some other stories. Uh, uh, I want to get with Jim. I think he's got a couple of them. And, Mike, you've got a couple of them. So, Jim, you take it uh, take over. <clears throat> All right. Listen, uh, these airplanes flying up there with no pilots, uh, it's uh, great when everything's going good. But it's many times everything going good, it can go to hell in the hatch in a hand basket quick. And that happened to uh, me and a crew. I was the co-pilot back in the uh, early days when we had a left Milwaukee going to Minneapolis, and we had a gigantic monster squall line coming at us. And, of course, the DC-7 couldn't get over a lot of that stuff, that the jets could, but we did this and went there and tried this and went around, turned around it. And basically, this squall line kept shoving us back we didn't have enough gas to go back to milwaukee and every time we went someplace the thunderstorms beat us there now could you imagine somebody having an airplane flying itself trying to update it and keep it going and all this stuff and nobody up there flying the thing and we went to Des Moines, couldn't get in they said well you got waterloo iowa over here if you if you get, if you hustle you can beat the storm coming there and lo and behold, we did go there, and we were hand-flying it. There wasn't any somebody back in Miami flying the airplane. It was us. And we were about 20 miles out at 6,000 feet doing a straight in with a squall line right on the other side of Waterloo. And the engineer looked up and said, all the tanks indicating empty. Scared me. To, well, I was already scared. But it really scared me then. But lo and behold, we broke out and saw the runway, and we landed and made a, about a midfield turnoff on a 3,000-foot runway because we didn't have any fuel. It was light. And then the storms hit there. 
Now, what's going to happen when you got uh, uh, somebody flying the airplane back somewhere and will be under in the boonies somewhere on the other side of the world? When you got something like that happening, everything's got to be. You can't. The computer can't keep up with it. The pilots can't keep up with it. The pilots on the ground. I'm talking about. I'm never, ever, ever going to ride on an airplane without a pilot. And what are they going to do when the pilot gets sick if you do have one up there? And somebody says, well, you know, we got a pilot up here, but he's just got food poison and he's throwing up and he's the only one up here. And you have 10 guys get up and say, well, I read a book about flying. Let me go up there and fly this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> put, put another I'll quarter in. <laughs> yeah, it ain't, it ain't ever going to happen. I'm telling you. Put another quarter in. at all times. I got one other story I'd like to tell real quick. I'll give you the real short version. I was going from Atlanta to L.A., and the flight was so long with headwinds that the crew would be illegal to fly it right back to Atlanta, so they called me and another couple of guys out. We sat back to back in the airplane, and they took off. <clears throat> and we're coming into L.A., and I noticed we're doing S-turns way out there over the desert. And I said, what's going on here, you know? And about that time, the flight attendant came up and said, the captain wants you to come up and talk to him. So I said, my Lord. So now, you know, if it's a computer up there, does the computer want me to come up and talk to him? No, but this is the pilot's up there, and he wanted my input. And what had happened, L.A. was fogged in. And they were landing to the west like they always do, but they were really backed up. And now we're out there doing S-turns 300 miles from the airport, burning gas. And we get down there, and we're about 15 miles on final behind two or three planes in front of us, and they turn the airport around. Now we are really in trouble. Uh, so we can't go back to that airport to the east, I forgot, in Ontario. We couldn't go back there. we got to land right here, and we don't have much gas or fuel. So we went out around over the Pacific and coming back in and about 15 miles out, it looked like we were going to be coming in final approach with 1,000 pounds in each tank. And I was telling, of course, the captain was flying and we were all in the Delta head of us. And once again, this is the guys there taking care of business, not some computer somewhere. And we came in and I told him, the co-pilot said, tell the tower that we're landing whether Delta clears the runway or not. We're going to land because we cannot make another big circle come back around. We'd run out of gas in five minutes. And we did, and we came in and landed. Is that the kind of stuff that these people are talking about not having pilots up there, maybe one pilot that's getting overloaded because all this is happening and he's trying to talk to everybody and the flight attendants are scared and asking what's happening? you got to have at least two guys up there. That's all it is to it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> agreed. We have another caller calling in, 305, uh, uh, not not you, Mark, but another area code 305 in the Miami area. Um, Mike, uh, how about you? Uh, any uh, experiences on takeoff or landings you'd like to share with us? Well, it's a whole bunch of them, but I can probably name a few different ones that uh, we got involved with. Especially uh, uh, like what Jim was saying about uh, getting low on fuel. We're going from London to Zurich one time, and we put the normal fuel with reserves on there, and the weather was down in, on the nub in, in Zurich, and uh, had a lot of traffic going in there, and we ended up having to to hold in, in three different places, and we had basically used up all of our our reserve fuel. 
and not even enough to get to an alternate. I mean, it's uh, we're getting one of those to one of those situations where me uh, sitting in the left seat, I could start feeling the upholstery on the seat starting moving to starting to move inward, and uh, <laughs> so when we landed in Zurich finally. Uh, the engineer was telling me he was getting the boost pump, low pressure lights on because we were getting real low on the fuel. And he was right because all all of the pumps were all flickering and we, we couldn't mm-hmm. even start the APU. We, we had to get mm-hmm. to our parking spot. We had to shut the airplane down and wait for ground power to come because the fuel in number two tank was down far enough where we couldn't get the APU started. So that was a pretty embarrassing flight for me, but uh, also when it came to the uh, interesting, uh, you know, Zurich gets a little cold in the wintertime and a lot of ice on the runways, uh, touching down in there, as I've done many times in uh, in, in uh, Zurich and also in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, coming from, uh, coming from the west, these morning arrivals when you're landing on runway eight into the sunrise, and all you see is it looks like you're landing on a mirror because the runway is like glazed ice. And a few times you get the airplane, you feel like you're almost going sideways trying to keep the plane on the runway with the, with the rudder and, and the brakes and up, uh, opposite aileron going into the wind and all that. And it's really a, a pretty interesting scenario. Uh, the other... One that I wanted to mention was uh, the the old Hong Kong Kai Tech Airport, which we've all seen on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, first few times we went in there, it didn't bother me that much because it was almost IFR all the way. So once you broke out halfway down the ILS and you saw the checkered target on the side of the mountain, the, the orange and white target, and you had to make your your 45-degree right-hand turn to line yourself up with a runway, it wasn't too bad. But the first time you do that approach going in there, when when the weather's clear and you see yourself flying around all of these mountains and seeing people hanging their laundry out and all that stuff, and you're you're going by them in pretty close proximity. Uh, uh. Because that approach was, I I always said it was... uh, a, uh, it was three different approaches in, in one. You yeah. initially did a VOR approach of Chung Chow VOR, and then you flew a radial, I think it was the 270 radial, off of Chung Chow, and then you t- turned in the beacon. It was an ADF beacon, and it didn't read until you get far enough down on that radial, so you got on the other side of the mountain, and the needle would point. Then you flew a bearing on the needle for the ADF to intercept the localizer to lead you to the glide slope, which took you down to the checkered flag, which then turned into a visual approach. So you had a VOR, an NDB, an ILS, and a visual all in one approach. Wow. But you was never, me, and I'm never just sitting here listening to you. Yeah. It was never, never, a, never a problem really landing on that runway with any a lot of crosswind, or it was the, the, it was trying to align yourself, and what you can really do by watching some of those YouTubes, and I can speak from experience, just to tell you how good 
a 727 is, and Jim and Neil, you both know that. What a good runner airplane that is. Oh, yeah. We want to, we yeah. want to wrap, yeah. wrap that thing around to get back on the center line. Yeah. And then you were good because you see what the 747s were doing going in there. So I didn't want to burn up all the time here, but I could go on and on and on like like uh, like Jim and and you could. So uh, we could uh, well, go on to the next. Uh, well, you know uh, the Category Three landings uh, that we had uh, on a few of our airplanes were approved for it. Uh, the first one that was approved was the uh, L-1011, of course, and uh, when the certain runways, certain airports. Uh, had sterile runways that were approved by the FAA for a category, what we call a Category 3 landing. That's a full automatic landing, touchdown, and braking on the runway. And I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Mr. Ed Brooks uh, in Atlanta, and on a flight I had up to uh, Newark. And Ed Brooks was a World War I ace, flying ace. He was in his 90s at the time he was on my flight, and he was in the lobby, and I recognized uh, a, a gentleman because there was another man standing beside him, and both of them had QB pins. And this is a, a group of uh, airmen that uh, there's a club that that uh, pilots have membership. And I no, recognized the wings on his lapel, and I asked about uh, this gentleman, this older gentleman. I asked his partner. I said, uh, who is this guy? And he told me it was Ed Brooks, the last living World War One ace, flying ace. And I, I, I asked, I went over and asked and introduced, introduced myself and asked him. I said, would you like to fly with us up in the cockpit uh, on a flight from Atlanta to Newark? And he said, "Oh yeah, he would be he would be happy to do that." And uh, it was a beautiful uh, evening, uh, no clouds, I don't think, from Atlanta to Newark. And um, <clears throat> so anyhow, he's sitting there, and I learned a little bit about his history and the fact that he started off with Sperry, uh, making instruments and autopilots back when the autopilot first came out. And uh, a remarkable man. And of course, he knew. Captain Eddie quite well because they were both. I don't think they were in the. I, I think he was in a different squadron than Rickenbacker. But uh, at any rate, <clears throat> I asked him. I said, "Now, have you ever seen a fully automatic landing?" And he said, "No. He's never sat through one." And I said, "Well, we we're going to demonstrate the 757 to you tonight, and uh, if we can get Newark to uh, work with us, and." Um, there's no weather there, and so at any rate, got into the area and asked uh, approach control to see if he could set us up for the runway, the ILS runway, the Category 3B runway, and he did, and he said, now, uh, the tower advises of the wind, and we had a pretty good crosswind, and I was kind of concerned whether I wanted to do this or not because the wind was pretty, pretty stiff, but um, it was about 20 degrees off the nose of the airplane. And uh, so a couple of the autopilot did, uh, did the uh, complete uh, check, and a uh, couple, all three of them, because you have to have three autopilots working, and a sterile runway, of course. 
and you could see New York, all the skyline of New York, Newark Airport. Uh, it was a beautiful night. So here we are sitting in the airplane, and he's looking at the runway out of his observer window on the left side. The crosswind, of course, was causing this. The airplane was crabbing into the wind, as we mentioned earlier. And um, he was looking at a good view of it out of his uh, observer window to the left of mine. And I, the runway was to the left of me looking out the main windshield, the captain's side. And um, we had that crosswind cranked in, or either the airplane, the autopilot had a, cross, a crosswind uh, cranked in. So I said, well, I'm going to ride it all the way down and see how it goes. And sure enough, we got down to uh, 300, 200, uh, three, you know, 300, 200, and the, and the first officer was calling off the uh, radio altimeter. And that airplane rolled out of that crabbed condition where it was off at an angle of about 20 degrees to the right, that nose straightened itself out right straight down the runway, put the right wing down and touched on the main right gear. A beautiful automatic, fully automatic landing. And I had it on medium braking and the airplane braked itself. And just to show off a little bit, I said, now watch this, uh, Mr. Brooks. I pull the yoke off the center line of the runway and then let it go and the airplane tracked right back to the center of the runway. A beautiful job. Mm -hmm. And most pilots that have flown category three uh, 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 landings down to zero, zero. Of course I did several of them out in uh, Los Angeles when the sea fog rolled in and we practiced, of course, like that evening, it was a good, uh, way of feeling comfortable that the airplane knew what it was doing and to, could do a good job. Uh, did you ever do Category 3, Jim? I'm sure you did. And uh, Mike, Yes, I did uh, on the 1011 and the 727 Z models, you know, the latest. We call them Z models because the life letter in the tail number was a Z. They had all the goodies like the 757 did. Worked perfect, yeah. I'll tell you. I did two yeah. in one day. Well, here's automation on landing. So, mm -hmm. and now takeoff that we Colleen read about uh, over in Toulouse using the takeoff. That's amazing. And I think we talked to Carlene one time, and Carlene says now, yeah, they we used to have restrictions. You couldn't couple the autopilot unless you were a thousand feet in the air. And then I think it went down to about 700 feet, and she said, well, you can just lift off and couple the autopilot now. Yeah, that's Amazing. a problem, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, any other thoughts or any other discussion about takeoff and landings? Like we say, the takeoffs are optional and the landings are mandatory. Landings are mandatory, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Kind of like well, back. <laughs> yeah, that's our discussion. But we want to find out what's happening to the new Eastern Airlines. And we have with us tonight Mark Porter, who's been with us on several shows. And Mike has told us in, about the new Eastern Airlines. And we kind of call it version 3.0 now because it's the third attempt to get uh, Eastern back in the air. And uh, Mark, what do you got to tell us about the new Eastern Airlines? 
Well, they've started their flights from John F. Kennedy to um, Guayaquil. Uh, the um, takeoff has been a little bit bumpy. Um, they are uh, trying to build up their load factor. The load factor right now is about a quarter of what it should be. And uh, I think uh, that they have two aircraft down in Guayaquil. One as a backup. They have N604 and 767-200. Uh, as a backup aircraft, and they have uh, N703 as the uh, aircraft that uh, they'll be using uh, normally in case something goes wrong with it, 604 gets put in place. So their on-time performance should be um, no less than three hours late. They would have to change passengers, luggage, and and the meal service, but that's about it, um, mm. to the 200. Um, the next Stop will be uh, Georgetown starting March 5th, and um, then Mexico, and then deeper into South America, and finally uh, using Miami. Um, they have recently come up with a new uh, uh, exterior paint job, which I think is rather silly, but um, their display was put on a uh, 787, which lends me to think that Eastern is going to be going with the 787 aircraft, uh, and the 767s will be moved to their upcoming cargo division. Eastern is now fully a uh, Department of Defense uh, airline, which is good money-making, and they also have their charter uh, division uh, bringing in money for them as well. So if their commercial division is losing revenue, um, then the others can make up for it. Uh, they're not doing any advertising, and that uh, needs to be, I guess, spread uh, word of mouth because um, they should be at least advertising in the foreign countries they're in and uh, not in the United States where it's more expensive. Um, maintenance evidently still seems to be a problem, as, as pilots report to me and complain. Um, I, I had suggested to the CEO that they uh, fly the aircraft in to uh, – Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, and New Lufthansa, and outsource their maintenance division. I know that they're rather full because Lufthansa does do the maintenance on JetBlue and on Spirit, but they really know their stuff, and I thought that would be an excellent uh, resource. Um, there are evidently talks underway for interline agreements in South America um, with Eastern, which makes sense because they only have around 14 aircraft, uh, let's see, eight 767s, three 777s, and three 747s, and they will be getting more 747s for domestic use. Um, <clears throat> the uh, interline agreements could expand Eastern quickly in South America to up to 15 and 20 destinations. Um, if they were at interline agreements in, in Ecuador, it could give us service to the you know, beautiful Galapagos Islands and Quito, and if they are doing uh, other interline agreements, it could get you to 15 other countries in South America by the end of this year. Mark? Mm -hmm. Sure. Mark, uh, just a question. Uh, who is our uh, ground handler in these different city uh, destinations? And uh, who does our catering? Those are two good questions um, that I do not know. I uh, don't know who does the catering in Ecuador, and 
I do not know who does the ground handling there. Um, I don't think it's it's not set up like um, uh, Aero Mexico or anything like that. I don't think it's an airline there. Um, I do know that they were not impressed with the first launch of Eastern Airlines. Um, that uh, when they had gotten back to me, um, that the aircraft was uh, not a good aircraft to start the operation with. Uh, hopefully it gets better this weekend. Uh, flights go down on Sunday, come up from Guayaquil on Sunday and go down on Monday from John F. Kennedy. And then in March, we go to four times a week um, <clears throat> out of John F. Kennedy round trip. Any talk of pass riding, Mark? <laughs> are getting passes uh, for the old employees you know that's something I had thought of for a long time that I thought um, if you know prior eastern uh, workers had would give like a 35% off um, I thought that would increase load factor dramatically uh-huh. you know yeah. in that sense right there uh, just a big dig discount and uh, or you know uh, I remember Braniff had uh for like a three thousand dollars, you could fly anywhere on Braniff in the United States and overseas. You'd play a, a flat ticket price. Yeah. Or, as I'm sure you remember, the days of uh, Pan Am. If you were going from Argentina to London, you could stop anywhere in between. You didn't have mm-hmm. to necessarily mm-hmm. go straight yeah. that one route. You flew the mileage yeah. route. So some of yeah. the airlines used to offer us uh, a fifty percent. Uh, positive space in the coach class. Yeah, I think that's perfect. I mean, they've got the they've got the seats. The seats aren't even full, not even half full the aircraft, and uh, that will take a while for them to get up. So why not try and get some right, ex Eastern people or ex Pan Am people or ex Brana anything um, into the skies on their aircraft and. Um, you know, get any any. Um, there's an old. Uh, I gave a five point plan to the uh, CEO, and I really think they're great ideas. Like the, it's not my idea. It's Pan Am's. Pan Am had a um, children under 12 fly 50 percent off when accompanied with their adult past, uh, parents. That's great for getting the load factor up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a $600 ticket, which is almost what it is right now to Guayaquil. And the kids are paying, three kids, paying $300 each, and you're not even getting your plane a quarter of the way full. Why not offer it? Yeah. Sure. yeah. Mark, if you could uh, just get the uh, CEO or some high official with the company to come on the radio show, we could give him some good ideas. Yeah, I did email him that. I did email him. So I told him that you all would like to have him on the show. And uh, I have not gotten a response from that yet. I know Ed Weagle would have responded to that right away. Oh, of oh, course, yeah. because yeah. Um, yeah. he knows damn right well that you can get a group, and, you know, once you start to have it advertised and people are doing something, uh, it becomes active. Right now people don't know about it, so it's sitting there and it's not going anywhere. It doesn't make right. sense for them not to. Yeah. If you talk about it, things will become known. Right. But right. I have pilots that tell me, we don't even know what we're going to do next week. That's not right. No, that's, that's, that's not good. And my dad, he was a bomber pilot, just breaking it a little bit here, during World War II, flew, uh, flew a B-24. He said, son, one day they may have 
automated pilots. <laughs> and I heard that there's that there's Air France 742, and it took off. And he said, ladies mm-hmm. and gentlemen, this is Air France 742, and we'd like to let you know they were a fully automated airplane, that there is no pilot on this plane, and that nothing can go wrong. 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 That's a word. So keep the pilot. And Eastern, I must say, does have really good cowboy pilots. If you want to be on a safe airline, it's with Eastern. Well, the old Eastern, anyhow, but I don't know about the new one. Those those spurs used to get caught on the underneath the rudder pedals, you know. Well, you know, Mark, uh, why don't you uh, send me the name of the uh, CEO and the address and telephone number, and let me see. It won't be uh, within the next week or two, but I'll see if I can call them and get them to come on. Okay. I'll Dorothy is really good at this, Mark. So if you can, she can mm-hmm. really work. Sure. W- and you should get him on. With me, because I think he'd like to hire me so he can fire me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I have a lot of my buddies in the airline industry and Eastern say, don't you want to work for us? I said, yeah, I think he'd love to hire me just so he could fire me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They laugh. Yeah, that's probably true. Mm -hmm. I got too much advertising for him going. Well, Well, Mark, thank you. I think that's what they need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, but Mark. But it's an exciting your... it's an exciting year for Eastern, and the seven 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 come to fruition this year. Okay. Well, uh, keep us posted and come on every week if we can get you. And uh, uh, we like uh, your reports. Yeah. Good. Good information about three point zero. Uh, Colleen well, had pleasure. to leave early, and and I'd like to just uh, say that uh, they're looking for uh, new. Members, uh, they have many, many char- uh, chapters that they have around the country, and uh, she said they're always looking for new members to join the Silverliners, and they take uh, members from uh, any airline now. They have uh, a mixed group of folks, and and uh, chapters are starting up just about everywhere. It's called Silverliners. The original Silverliners was Eastern Airlines, and uh, so that's her report. How about Jim? What's going on? Oh, uh, with Reba? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to have our uh, board meeting, the uh, required board meeting, on February the 1st. That's uh, Saturday a week from Saturday. And we're going to discuss the reunion, which will be again at the Kennesaw uh, Embassy Suites probably in September. And right now, that's about all we got going. Of course, we have an agenda and things to talk about and do. <laughs> And uh, we'll make ourselves busy doing all that for sure. And uh, I'm not looking forward to driving all the way across North Atlanta to get there, but we're having it on Saturday, and I'll probably have to take <laughs> more than two or three tons to get there. It's getting terrible up there, Neil, terrible on North Atlanta. Oh, I know it. I know it. Yeah, I oh, was there boy. last year, and uh, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a mess. Yeah. Thanks so much. But anyhow, uh, that's what we're going to be doing, and uh, we keep having our – you see Reaper luncheons every month, and we have uh, sometimes we have a speaker, sometimes we don't. When we don't, we manage to try to outlie and outfield each other and laugh at everything that was said, whether it's funny or not. So we'll just keep ourselves busy there. 
<laughs> and I see I see you have those big raffles too at your luncheons. Oh Lord, yeah. We had one last year, I think it was uh uh maybe it was over a year ago and we had forty eight door prizes. And Bird wow. Tedder wow. knew about it and he didn't come. I'll tell you, you ain't lived till you've got 48 bill prizes trying to guide. Well, I done won three things. I don't want anything else. I'm going to get your foot up here anyhow. You know your taste. But we have people giving stuff. We're going to have another good auction, too, at the uh, reunion in September. uh, Don Till has contributed a whole bunch of good stuff, and uh, Bob Webb. Widow did too, and we'll get Jim Gardner up there and give him a few beers, and he can entertain us being an auctioneer. Yeah, going to get a price of that seven twenty picture. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know about that picture, don't you? That's a beautiful picture. As a matter of fact, I am. No, I'm not. I thought I was sitting there looking at it, but it's in my garden room. I'm in my office. No, but it is a beautiful picture. And, uh-huh. uh, I. Uh, maybe I can make a bid on it for you or something. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Take a picture of it. Take a picture of the picture <laughs> and we'll put it on the uh, website. There you go. Okay. All right. There you go. Okay, Dorothy, what's, what you got coming up? Okay, Neil, we have, uh, first I would like to thank uh, Chuck Albright for his donation of $50. We got that this weekend, and we really do appreciate that, Chuck. And not only do we appreciate the donation, but, of course, we appreciate you being part of our hosting and coming on every week voluntarily and just helping us out whenever you can. And we do appreciate that so much. Um, Well, thank you very much. Yeah, good job, Chuck. Excellent. Uh, And remember, when you send in a donation of $40 or more, Neil will send you a copy of his popular collection uh, of Wings of Many. Your support of the show and the website assures we will make it through 2020, our 10th year of Eastern Broadcasting. The radio show has a new address, and you might want to copy it down or you can find it on our website, www.ealradioshow.com. Uh, the um, correspondence and donations would go to Captain Neil Holland, EAL Radio Show at 641 North Legacy, L-E-G-A-C-Y Trail, and that's in St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. And why not start your new year by sending your donation to keep the radio voice of Eastern Airlines alive and well, and well into 2020. We hope to keep going on, so without you, we can't do it. So please remember to give us a hand. Uh, Also, all of these testimonials are up on the website under the Sponsor uh, tab, and uh, please go in and check it all out. Uh, We have a series of them up there, and we have year after year. Uh, We don't want to forget anyone. Uh, Our upcoming programs uh, we have next week, we have EAL Music and History, and uh, Neil is going to feature John Denver and Glenn Campbell, two great favorites. So we're really looking forward to listening to these reviews to recording artists and can't wait uh, to hear them. The following week, we'll have our History of Eastern Airlines commercials. And 
That ought to be really good. I mean, Easton had so many fabulous commercials, and he's going to play the uh, sound bites of each one. So join us to hear this, and please let us know if you have any program that you would like us to air. Please send it in to host at com. We're always there. We'll answer as soon as possible, and would love to have you donate your suggestion. And uh, if you have a criticism, of course, we'd like to hear that, too. We're more than happy to work around any issue. So thank you for all, and back to you, Neil. like one of those Greece landings to me. Be sure to tune in next Monday, January 27th, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways. And the radio show hosts become disc jockeys and Eastern historians as they introduce history and music of two great singers during the Eastern day, John Denver and Glenn Campbell, our producers telling it's time to say goodbye. This is Chuck Albright signing off on behalf of our host, Dorothy Gagnon, Don Gagnon, Jim Holder, Mike Scott, Colleen DeFleece, and our producer, Neil Holland, playing sign-off music made popular by Merle Haggard, Silver Wings. Don't take that airplane ride, but you locked me out of your mind. Left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sun Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world. And good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are. We love you, Eastern. Good night. We love you. Good night. Good night, Eastern. Good night, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Good show, Neil. Great show, guys. Thanks so much. That was great. Hello,